Good morning. Welcome to Worship from Creef. It's great to see you all here. A reading from the Psalms, Psalm 95. Come, let us praise the Lord. Let us sing for joy to God who protects us. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and sing joyful songs of praise. For the Lord is a mighty God, a mighty king over all gods. He rules over the whole earth from the deepest caves to the highest hills. He rules over the sea which he made, the land also which he himself formed. Come, let us bow down and worship him. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. He is our God. We are the people he cares for, the flock for which he provides. May God bless us this reading of his holy word as we come into his presence in this time of worship. Welcome to you all. Welcome to those who are joining us at home. Somebody the other day there asked me why we always play that little tune of music at the start. So the folks at home know the service is, is beginning. But welcome to you. Um, welcome. This is Father's Day, of course. And we give thanks today for all the, the good and, and especially the godly male influences in our lives. Uh, special Father's Day for, for one dad, for Scott McCauley, Scott and Florence, had a wee baby boy last weekend, and so we, we send our love and our prayers and congratulations to them, and we want to uh, pray especially uh, for them in these early days as they, as they adjust and, and get, get all the, the, the health issues back in balance again. Uh, so Father's Day, we give thanks for fathers. And this is also a special day in our family uh, because every few years Father's Day falls on my mum's birthday. And it's my mum's birthday today as well. So if my parents, I think they're probably joining us online, if they are joining us online, happy Father's Day dad, happy birthday mum, happy birthday to you. But it's also a special day in our family because, where is she? She's going to be really embarrassed in a minute. This is the anniversary of our daughter Ruth's baptism. She was baptised on Father's Day 16 years ago. It was the 19th of of June, but the 20th is is near enough. And we've got happy memories of gathering together as a family and as friends with our church family to celebrate that service and then to enjoy refreshments and cake after the service. Sadly, there are no refreshments and cake available today. That will come in time, but uh, uh, we have to move carefully and slowly through these different levels of restrictions um, that have been such a big part of our lives uh, over the past, past months. But today, of course, we can sing. Behind our masks, but we can sing, and that's a big step forward. Sing here in church and at home. And, of course, we've got the freedom to gather with small numbers of family or friends. And these freedoms that we have, these freedoms to worship, to express what we believe, to be free to associate with other people, even together as family and friends, is sadly not the experience of everyone around the world. Today, as well as being Father's Day and my mum's birthday and Ruth's baptism anniversary, Today is also being marked in different countries as Sanctuary Sunday or Refugee Sunday. For there are many folks, many people now living in Scotland today who who have a, a very personal and lived experience of having to flee their own country and to find sanctuary, to find refuge in other places and here, of course, in Scotland. And we thank God that there are people in churches and other communities of faith who see the value in celebrating that diversity and the cultural richness that other folks bring to us, people who offer vision of hope, of friendship, of solidarity. My first experience of refugees coming to Scotland was way back in 1972 when some 60,000 Ugandan Asians were expelled from Uganda by President Idi Amin and some of them came to Falkirk where we lived at the time and my parents gave from the little we had to welcome them, to help them adjust to a new life in Scotland. And then in the 1990s I remember sitting with other refugees and asylum seekers in Glasgow uh, what I can best describe as trials that were being run by Home Office officials who were trying to deport 
Christian men and women who had become part of our local churches, who, because of their faith in Jesus, feared imprisonment or even being killed if they returned to their country of origin. And even now, in different parts of Scotland, people have lived experience of of that process of welcoming refugees, of welcoming asylum seekers in their congregations and communities. You might have seen this week the the, the minister of Springburn Church in Glasgow was on the news because there's been a a successful campaign the church has been involved in uh, against the deportation of a young boy who's grown up in Scotland nearly all his life. And he's been given permission to stay, although that campaign still goes on to protect the grandmother who raised him after his mum died when she arrived here in Scotland. As Christian people, we sense that we are resident aliens, for we belong to another kingdom. And our experience of Christ is about being welcomed in. Just as you were all welcomed at the door this morning, we are welcomed in to God's kingdom. I should have said a special welcome to Sean and Stuart, who are visitors with us today. Very welcome. Friends of uh, Scott and Florence. But we are welcomed in. We move from darkness to light. We move from death to life. From being not a people to becoming the people of God. Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me food. Jesus said, I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. Jesus said, I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. Jesus said, I was naked, and you gave me clothing. Jesus said, I was sick, and you took care of me. Jesus said, I was in prison, and you visited me. Jesus said, in as much as you did that to one of those considered the least important, you did it to me. Made in the image of God, we see the face of Christ in all. So let us pray. Our God, we thank you that as we gather together in worship today, that you make space for each of us. You call us and you equip us. You love us and you welcome us. You invite us to worship you, knowing who and what we are. Assuring us that there is room for us in your house, among your people, and a place for us in your kingdom. God, give us security in your love and your calling, so that we will always be able to make room for others, to appreciate their gifts. May they be even more useful or creative than our own. God, who embraces us in welcome, as we experience your forgiveness, may we grow in confidence of your love, so that our arms open wider to embrace others in your name. And as Jesus taught his followers, so we pray for your coming kingdom as we say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So let's stand to worship God in song as we sing our first hymn, Father of Heaven, whose love profound.
Today we're uh, turning to Paul's letter to the Romans and going to read a few verses from chapters 1, 3 and 5, beginning chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith in his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Then continuing in chapter 3. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And then moving to chapter 5, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word to his name be the praise and the glory. We'll stand and sing again, and this time it's the hymn, the song, What Gift of Grace.
switch the microphone on this week. Last Sunday, you'll, if you were joining us online, uh, you'll not have heard the sermon too clearly as there was a problem with the microphone. So I hope it's working okay this morning. We managed to recover some of the sound uh, from another microphone and add that to the recording of the service. But because that microphone is away at the back of the building, uh, there was quite a bit of hiss over the recording. So if you were watching that recording, I hope you're able to maybe use YouTube subtitles or turn the volume up to follow that part of our service. With that in mind, and before we turn to the letter of the Romans, for those at home, let me give a brief recap. We were reading from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, and the main point was that Paul was, te- that Paul was teaching, and it's important for us today, was that evangelism begins with the local church. Our gospel, Paul says, came to you, you welcomed the message, the Lord's message rang out from you. Thessalonica was a place that uh, Paul and Silas and the others had gone as missionaries, working to pay their own expenses. It was an idolatrous, polytheistic, hedonistic, sexually immoral culture. And it was into that maelstrom that the missionaries uh, called people to turn from their lifestyle of worshipping various Greek and Roman gods to a life worshipping the living and true God. But that message, of course, we know did not go down well with the whole population and accused with usurping the authority of Caesar by claiming another king, King Jesus. The book of Acts tells us that Paul and Silas had to flee the city. They were helped to escape by night. So great was the opposition to their ministry, so great the persecution of the young church in Thessalonica, with some of these young leaders being dragged before the magistrates. And although there were those people in that city who wholeheartedly welcomed the missionaries, treating them like children, the missionaries treating them like parents, mothers and fathers. Although separated physically, they were never far from the apostles' thoughts and prayers. And Paul writes that he longed to be among them. And having sent Timothy to see how they were faring, Paul delighted to discover that despite the persecution, the church in Thessalonica was flourishing. And writing to encourage them in that letter, Paul reminds them of the importance of holiness, of love, of future hope, which he expands in his second letter when he writes more about the parousia, the second coming of Christ. The challenge to the Thessalonians, I was saying, is the same challenge to the church here in Crete and throughout Scotland, and it's to embody the gospel. And to pass it on. So when we come today to look at Paul's letter to the Romans, what we, we, what we have is another genuine letter. Although it's also a kind of Christian manifesto. A manifesto of freedom through Jesus Christ. And this letter to the Romans, well, you know, I, I think it's the fullest and the, the grandest statement of the gospel that's in the New Testament. It proclaims freedom from the wrath of God revealed against all ungodliness. Freedom from ethnic conflict. Freedom from death and the fear of death. It declares the redemption of the universe and freedom to live in love for God and for our neighbor. And on Refugee Sunday, There's no better message to be sharing. One commentator of this this letter, the book of Romans, said, Romans frees us from the dark little dungeon of our own ego. The letter to the Romans, well, it's had enormous influence in the church, not least around the time of the Reformation. Martin Luther in Wittenberg, called it really the chief part of the New Testament and truly the purest gospel. John Calvin, the French reformer, writing from Geneva, wrote, if we understand it, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. Here in the UK, William Tyndale, the the father of the English Bible, described Romans 
as the principal and the most excellent part of the New Testament, and also a light and a way in unto the whole Scripture. But you know, above all these fine comments, the letter to the Romans contains Paul's own commitment to the gospel. In verses 14 to 16 of chapter 1, Paul writes, I am obligated, I am eager, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And all of us really in church today, we need to recover and experience that same kind of eagerness for the gospel. Just referring back to last week once more, we need to recover and experience the eagerness of the Thessalonians, of whom Paul said, our gospel came to you, you welcomed the message, and the Lord's message rang out from you. They were enthusiastic, despite the persecutions that came upon them. When I was thinking about our service today, I, I, I was looking back at the, the order of service from 16 years ago from Ruth's uh, baptism. And although our, our friend Pauline was leading worship in, in my church that, that morning to allow Elizabeth and I just to be there as parents. And I noticed in that order of service that with my former congregation, we were in the middle of a series on the book of Romans. It's come full circle. Then we were systematically going through Romans, starting at chapter 1, working verse by verse all the way through it. We're not doing that just now. As I said a couple of weeks ago, when we began looking at these New Testament letters, we are in these studies simply taking an overview of some of the, the big themes in these letters as they relate to us today. With the challenge of becoming a missional church, showing the relevance of the gospel to life today, through who we are and what we do, and through who we are and what we do, invite others, other people, into saving faith in Jesus Christ. Stripping away everything else that has been part of our church practice in the past, we get down to two simple things. Firstly, we need to be a church that receives the gospel and that passes it on. And secondly, if we're to be effective at passing on that gospel, we must truly embody the gospel in the things that we do together. I believe God is speaking that message to those of us in the church today. We need to recover the missional priority of being the church. Yes, we can, we can look back with fondness on the church as it used to be, but we shouldn't be going back past is not the direction of travel that God is calling us to. Do you know, we were driving quite a bit yesterday. We went down to Renfrew to see Elizabeth's mum, and, and I, I was driving the car. I was getting it all wrong because it was Elizabeth's car, and the buttons and controls were all in the wrong place. But the one thing that was in the right place was the rear view mirror. And if you're driving, you, you look out the, the, the windshield of the car and you see everything that lies in front of you. You can look from side to side and see the things that are happening alongside you. You see what lies ahead of you in the journey. Or you can lift your eyes up a bit and look at this tiny rear view mirror and see a reflection of where you've been. And no matter what point of the Christian journey we are at, God wants us to be moving forward. He wants us to see the big picture, not the restricted little picture of the past. If those of us who claim some allegiance to the church don't see our need for Christ, our need for the infilling and the leading of the Holy Spirit, how on earth can we expect people who have never really heard or never really considered the gospel to put their faith and their hope in Jesus? And then, of course, there's the, the harder target group of folks. People who, at some point in their lives, have had a connection with the church. Maybe they've even professed faith at some point in their life. And they've been welcomed into communicant membership or whatever other churches call that process. But then they've turned away from God. 
It's often said in church circles, you, you never lose your salvation. And that's true, but it's not the complete teaching of Scripture. If you choose to deny God now, you risk an eternity out with the grace of God. If you choose to ignore it now, well, the future is not looking very rosy for you. Just now in the providence of God, the whole creation experiences a kind of general grace of God. Nothing would work if God was not being gracious to us just now, to all of us. But it's a fearful thing to risk an eternity apart from that grace and that love that we all experience through the gracious God, our Heavenly Father. And so, your task and my task, if we are the church, is to receive the gospel, to pass on the gospel, to embody the gospel in all that we are, and all that we do. Why? So that other people might come to faith in Jesus Christ. Just as the church in Thessalonica was called to be distinctive in their living, so the church is called to distinctive living today. For unless there's a distinctiveness seen in the church, and by that I don't mean a a puritanical tyranny, but rather a reflection of the grace and the love of God shown in and through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. A distinctiveness shaped and led by the Holy Spirit. Unless there's a distinctiveness that is seen to be attractive, why would people even notice or consider the church and the gospel? That's good news that we seek to embody and share. There's nothing that keeps people away from Christ more than their inability to see their need of him or their unwillingness to admit it. That's the plain and the unpopular principle that lies behind the opening chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans, where Paul demonstrates the universality of human sin, the universality of guilt. And in these opening chapters of Romans, Paul divides the the human race into several different groupings, several different sections, and he accuses them one by one of falling short. He shows that each group has failed to live up to the knowledge that they already have. Instead, they have deliberately suppressed and even contradicted what they know to be true. Therefore they are guilty and they are without excuse, Paul says. Nobody can plead innocence because nobody can plead ignorance. If I was driving in another country and I didn't know what the maximum speed limit was, there's no excuse for me going over that speed limit. I'm guilty of not finding out, of not knowing, guilty of being ignorant and and making myself ignorant. Simply not knowing is no excuse. And that's what Paul's saying. No one can plead innocence because no one can plead ignorance. The facts are clear to see in creation that there is a beneficent God. Firstly, in his letter, Paul portrays depraved Gentile society in its idolatry, in its immorality, in its antisocial behavior. There's a whole section in chapter 1 from verse 18 that speaks of God's wrath against mankind who have exchanged, he said, the glory of the immortal God for other things. And therefore, Paul says, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of the body, their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. It's happening in Rome, 
happening in Thessalonica, happening all over. And these words from nearly 2,000 years ago speak powerfully to our world today where people worship so many things other than the living God. And then, secondly, Paul criticizes what we might call critical moralizers, whether they're Gentiles or Jews, people who profess high ethical standards and apply them to everyone except themselves. And he writes, God's kindness led you towards repentance, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourselves. This will take place on the day when God will judge people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Note these last four words, as my gospel declares. Paul was unashamed at pointing to himself and pointing to his own teaching as coming from God. He's reminding his readers in this letter of his apostolic authority, the authority given to him and to others by the Lord Jesus Christ. These words are words to pay attention to. And then thirdly, Paul turns to self-confident Jews who boast of the knowledge of God's law, but who don't obey God's law. Using the kind of argument that if we do evil, then we create even more opportunity for God to be gracious and show his glory and his goodness to us. And Paul repudiates those who live that kind of life and who slanderously report him as saying, let us do evil that good may result. And finally, Paul in this part of his letter to the Romans encompasses the whole human race and he concludes that we are all guilty every one of us without excuse before God for all he says have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and this is the point to which Paul in this part of his letter has been relentlessly moving namely that every mouth be silenced And that the whole world be held accountable to God. After Paul's lovely opening greetings in his letter, after his sharing of grace and peace which comes from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, after commending the Roman Christians for their faith which is being reported all over the world throughout the empire, these first three chapters of the book of Romans then come as a a devastating exposure of human sin and guilt. And when you read that, you you might feel uplifted to begin with at the start of Paul's letter, and then you're almost slapped down. (coughs) Paul's words are incredibly challenging to the original readers and to us who read it today. And in response, we might be tempted to try to change the subject and talk instead of the need for self-esteem. We might try to blame our behavior on our genes or our nurturing. We might try, try to blame the culture in which we live. But really, these things are just avoidance. A proper response to what Paul is writing is to accept the divine diagnosis of a, of the condition that we're in, and to accept our responsibility for that condition. It's only when we get to that point of acceptance that we're ready for the great but now of Romans 3.21, in which Paul then, having slapped people down, as it were, then begins to lift them up again. And he explains how God has intervened through Christ And through Christ's cross for our salvation. And if you read these first three chapters of the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, and feel somewhat deflated, it's now that Paul lifts you up. 
Up until this point, he said that all human beings of every race and rank, the moral and the moralizing, the Jews, the Gentiles, are without exception sinful, guilty, inexcusable, speechless before God. Until this point, there is no real light. There's no flicker of hope. There's no prospect of a rescue. But now, Paul suddenly breaks in. God himself has intervened. And after the long, dark night, the new day has dawned. It's a fresh revelation. And its focus is on Jesus Christ and his cross. This paragraph in chapter 3 has been called the center and the heart of this part of the gospel, the, the letter. Another commentator says this paragraph may possibly be the most important single paragraph ever written. Why? And we've got it to read. And certainly it contains great themes of propitiation or atonement, of redemption, of justification. But it also speaks to us of God's justice and God's love for us. For here we have Paul writing to the Romans, drawing a deliberate contrast between the past and the present, between sins committed previously, which God in his forbearance left unpunished, and the present in which God has acted to demonstrate his justice. Paul is saying that God has shown great forbearance, divine forbearance, postponing the punishment that was rightly due throughout history and the divine justice that exacted Christ and his cross. The cross of Christ is the focal point of history. Jesus' death on the cross dealt supremely and retrospectively with all the sin that had built up over the years and the centuries since the creation. It dealt with the sin that had infested creation right up to this day. When we confess our sin, when we repent of it, it has been dealt with once and for all time. Where? At the cross. And both sides of history look to that event. But according to Romans 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 8, there was another demonstration on the cross. Paul writes, but God demonstrated or proved his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's why we were in the mess that God acted. The essence of love given, the degree of love, is measured by the costliness of that love and by the unworthiness of the recipient. Paul is saying by these standards, God's love in Christ is absolutely unique. For in sending his son to die for sinners... He was giving everything. He was giving his very self and giving himself for those who deserved nothing from him except judgment. We read Paul's letter to the Romans. We look back to the event on the cross, Jesus' death. And we cannot understand the cross unless we have seen it as a double demonstration. God's justice. God's love. And here in this letter to the Romans, we have Paul's manifesto of freedom. The gospel comes to you and to me. Will we welcome that message? Will the message ring out from us. Let's join our hearts, let's join our voices as we stand for final hymn, Here is Love Vast as the Ocean.
or listening at home will come and join with us here in church next Sunday as we explore of more of Paul's letter to the Romans. The New Testament principle is that the people of God gather together on the Lord's day. And it's easy to watch at home. I know it's easy to watch at home. It's easy to tune, at some, tune in at some other point during the week. And for some people, that's perhaps the only way that you can share in our worship time, but with lots of space here. So I encourage you, if you are able, come and join us in person next Sunday. Remember to uh, book your seats, just in case we have an influx of people uh, and, and the seats are getting tightly uh, in demand. Chiefparishchurch.org forward slash booking. Put your name and an email address in, it guarantees you a seat. Or as some folks do, they phone the man. A few people did that this week. And that helps us to know who's coming and it helps us to make sure that we've got the seats in the right order for each different household. Can I also encourage you to be praying for our Jungle Adventure Holiday Club? Uh, it's really great that we're able to do a holiday club at all this summer. And that's going to be taking place across the road in the church grounds from the 5th to the 9th of July. Um, we have a team together. We've already, I think, got about 10 or 11 children registered. There's still space for more, so... If you know children who are primary four through primary seven age group, tell their parents, tell them, get them to register and come and join in the, the, the Jungle Adventure, 5th to 9th July. And if you have anything at home that would help us to create a jungle, you know what it looks like in the garden of the church across the road. It's all very neat and tidy. The weeds have been weed killered and it's very unjungle-like. So we want to make it look like a jungle. If you have anything uh, that would help with that, uh, we welcome a loan of these things. Um, so be praying about that if you've got stuff that would help us and be telling families with, with younger children, four, primary four through primary seven. Holiday Club, 5th to 9th of July. So we'll look forward to that, but we'll look forward to being together next Sunday, uh, coming together here in person, and of course those who can only watch at home, uh, but join with us uh, at 11 o'clock as we continue to look at, at Paul's writings and uh, particularly next week the letter to the Romans. Till then, may the blessing of God, the ever-present Father, 
the ever-living Son, the ever-active Holy Spirit, descend upon you and remain with you now and always. Amen.